Please join with me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A reading from Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, God's steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our sight. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you. Give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. The word of the Lord. As many of you know, in the 1990s and in the first decade of this century, Sonia and I lived for 11 years in the Middle East, most of that time in the occupied Palestinian territories. Our children, Sam and Kate, were born on the Mount of Olives, the mountain called Jebel Zaytun in Arabic and Ha'azetim in Hebrew. For a couple of those years, we even lived on the Mount of Olives, only a kilometer or so away from the road that has traditionally gone from Bethany, past Vethphage, up to the summit of the mount, then winding down, past Gethsemane, into the Kidron Valley, and then up again into Jerusalem's old city. I say that traditionally the road follows that path. It still does, but now the Israeli-built wall, with its 25-foot-high concrete slabs, cuts off traffic between Al-Azaria, or Bethany, and Beit Fadja, or Bethphage. Anyway, my reason for sharing this isn't to launch into a virtual tour of Jerusalem, or to go into depth about how the Israeli occupation has fractured the, ge- fractured the geography and divided families of Jerusalem's Palestinian neighborhoods. Rather, I'm simply noting that for a couple of years, I lived very close to this road. I walked and drove along this road. I played at being an amateur tourist guide by leading MCC groups and family members along this road. What I never did was to join the procession that unfolds along this road each Eid Sha'anin, or Palm Sunday, the Festival of the Palms, starting at Beit Fadja, or Bethphage, and ending up in the Old City. Thousands of Christians from around the world participate in this palm branch-waving procession each year, 
including Palestinian Christians from Jerusalem and inside Israel, as well as from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, if the Israeli military authorities approve their request to enter Jerusalem. Yet, despite my relative proximity, I never joined in the Palm Sunday procession. There are various mundane reasons for this. For several years, we lived outside of Jerusalem in a village in the northern West Bank or in the Gaza Strip, and so we celebrated Holy Week with Christians in those places. And when we lived in Jerusalem, our children were young, and the prospect of leading them through crowded throngs didn't seem terribly appealing. Plus, there was always the possibility of joining the procession next year. Of course, eventually, there wasn't a next year for us as we moved back to the United States. And so each Palm Sunday, I'm left with a twinge of regret for not having joined in this annual procession up and down the Mount of Olives. And I'm sure Bob Martin didn't mean to make me feel inadvertently bad when he was regaling us in the prayer room right here before the service about how he and Nancy just recently went on this procession. (laughs) Yet over the years since our return to the U.S., I've reflected on this low-level, nagging feeling of having missed out. But I've also come to feel mixed emotions about Palm Sunday, and have told myself that in what is undoubtedly some type of compensation mechanism, that perhaps my failure to join the Palm Sunday procession in Jerusalem reflected a subconscious discomfort with Palm Sunday itself. The church's celebration of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem with crowds of disciples proclaiming his arrival as the king sent by God is from the vantage point of Good Friday, a bitterly festive celebration shot through with the heavy knowledge for those of us as hearers that these same crowds will very shortly abandon and deny Jesus. When the Pharisees tell Jesus to command his disciples to stop welcoming him as king, Jesus replies, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. But do these disciples who shout out that Jesus is king, the promised one of Israel, have any idea what they are saying? Do we have any idea what we are saying when we praise, when we sing songs of praise to Jesus, our coming king, as we join the children in processing around the sanctuary with palm-waving branches? What possible sense from the vantage point of Good Friday when the powers of sin and death appear so decisive, can we make of the claim of the confession that God, the creator of heavens and earth, of the universe, of black holes, has come to be with us as king, a king who now hangs crucified between two common criminals dying an ignominious death? At least two things, then, make it challenging, for me at least, to join without hesitation or reservation in the Palm Sunday shouts that welcome Jesus as King. First, the painful knowledge that all too often my words and actions, like those of the disciples, betray my words of joyously welcoming Jesus. I am inconstant. I fall away. And second, I struggle to make sense of how to proclaim as King this man Hanging limply 
on a cross, parched, bleeding out, struggling to breathe. I may confess with my tongue an Easter faith that the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone of a whole new creation. I may confess a faith that God's steadfast love endures forever. But too often when it comes time on the liturgical calendar to sing shouts of praise and thanksgiving, like today on Palm Sunday, or a week from today as we celebrate Easter, I feel mired in a Good Friday world, the power of God's love seeming awfully weak in the face of the powers of sin and death, be it in the face of the myriad ways that I know I turn away from God, or in the face of the idolatrous greed and savagery of our political institutions, or in the face of disease that eats away at the bodies of souls, of families and friends, or in the face of the groaning of a creation ravaged by human-driven climate change. Holy Week, for me, is marked by this tension a tension between confession of faith and the power of God's steadfast love to bring life out of death and a despairing glance within and around me of what appears to be an empire of sin triumphant. I sing Hosanna on Palm Sunday. I proclaim that Christ is risen on Easter. I confess my belief, but in my heart I call out, help my unbelief. I won't be able to resolve this tension I experience, which is maybe a tension, I hope it's a tension that maybe a few others experience within this sermon. Most likely, this tension will persist throughout my life. Rather than trying to provide a neat resolution to the tension inherent in faith's desperate reaching out to the promise of God's steadfast love, I'll share two readings that in different ways have provoked me this Lenten season, challenging me to be ready for God to do a new thing in my life, in our city, in our country, and in our world. These readings offer me hope that God can and does enter into our broken lives and into our sin-scarred communities, transforming us into acceptable offerings to be laid down in service and thanksgiving to God. The first reading I'll offer is from the 8th century church father, Andrew of Crete, born in Damascus and mute until the age of seven, when he was miraculously healed upon receiving communion. Andrew went on to become one of the church's great preachers and hymnographers. In one of his famous Holy Week sermons, reflecting on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Andrew proclaims the unfathomable mystery that we are clothed in Jesus' grace. Andrew exhorts his listeners, Let us run to accompany Jesus as he hastens towards his passion and imitate those who met him then, not by covering his path with garments, olive branches, or palms, but by doing all we can to prostrate ourselves before him by being humble and by trying to live as he would wish. Then we shall be able to receive the word at his coming, and God, whom no limits can contain, will be within us. 
So let us spread before Jesus' feet, not garments or soulless olive branches, which delight the eye for a few hours and then wither, but ourselves clothed in Jesus' grace, or rather, clothed completely in him. We who have been baptized into Christ must ourselves be the garments that we spread before him. Let us present the conqueror of death, not with mere branches of palms, but with the real rewards of his victory. Let our souls take the place of the welcoming branches as we join today in the children's holy song, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. The second reading I'll share is from a contemporary church mother, the Mennonite feminist theologian and poet Carol Penner of Ontario. In her poem inspired by Psalm 118, Penner imagines Jesus coming into the cities nearest us, appearing among those whom the world has rejected. She ends the poem, and I'll end this sermon as well, with a question that challenges us to see with new eyes and to act with a new heart. Psalm 118 by Carol Penner. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Jesus comes to the gate, to the synagogue, to houses prepared for wedding parties, to the pools where people wait to be healed, to the temple where lambs are sold, to gardens beautiful in the moonlight. He comes to the governor's palace. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, to new subdivisions and trailer parks, to penthouses and basement apartments, to the factory, the hospital, and the cineplex, to the big box outlet center, and to churches with the same old message, unchanged from the beginning of time. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you with his good news, and hope erupts. Joy springs forth. The very stones cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The crowds jostle and push. They can't get close enough. People running alongside, flinging down their coats before him. Jesus, the parade marshal, waving, smiling. The paparazzi elbow for room, looking for the perfect picture for that headline, the man who would be king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you, and gets the red carpet treatment. Children waving real palm branches from the florist, silk palm branches from Walmart, palms made from green construction paper, Hosannas ringing in churches, chapels, cathedrals, in monasteries, basilicas, and tent meetings. King Jesus honored in a thousand hymns in Canada, Cameroon, Calcutta, and Canberra. We love this great, big, powerful, capital K, King Jesus, coming in glory and splendor and majesty and awe and power and might. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, to the city nearest you. Kingly, he takes a towel and washes feet. 
With majesty, he serves bread and wine. With honor, he prays all night. With power, he puts on chains. Jesus, king of all creation, appears in state in the eyes of a prisoner, the migrant, the addict, asking for one cup of cold water, one coat shared with someone who has none, one heart, yours, and a second mile. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the city nearest you. Can you see him? Amen.